A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Yehudi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored in honor of the great work done by the Jewish History Soundbites podcast in generating interest and furthering knowledge of Jewish history. Today, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Tsars and the, Jew- and the Jews, the Tsars of Russia, of course, the Romanov dynasty in the Russian Empire. And it is a big topic and quite a broad subject. I guess we can call this one of those macro episodes. Um, it needs a lot of context. Um, so it actually is kind of related to a recent episode I had about the partitions of Poland. And maybe we'll even use that as a starting point. Um, to understand the, the, how the, the rule of the czars uh, uh, had an, an impact on the Jewish population. It's after the partitions of the Polish kingdom, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, in the last quarter of the 18th century, that the Russian Empire inherits uh, this big Jewish population. They, of course, swallow up the largest portion of the Polish kingdom, and, and with it, uh, they instantly have the largest uh, Jewish community in the world. Um, so that's the starting point. The, the czars now have to formulate a Jewish policy. Um, and uh, and it's a, like I said, it's a big topic, so I think this is going to be in two parts. So part two is still available for sponsorship. You can be in touch with me. But that's where they're located. I want to give it a tiny drop of a chronological, geographic, and demographic framework. We'll start with demographics. With the partition of Poland, Russia now had the largest Jewish population in the world. Uh, by the end of the 19th century, which is, you know, 100 years after the partition, there would be over 5 million Jews in the Russian Empire. By far the largest Jewish population in the world. And I mean, like, really by far. Until, until the United States uh, got rose, and they rose due to immigration immigra- from the Russian Empire. So it's... You know, it's directly related to, to, to Russia. But before the United States arose as a primary uh, Jewish community, so you're talking about close to 50% of the world Jewish population is residing in Russia. Okay, that's a, a, a huge proportion. I mean, Jews were living all over the world. And to say between 40 and 50% are living in one specific empire, that's a very, very... Uh, important uh, demographic uh, fact to keep in mind. What we're talking about here, we're talking about the most important and largest Jewish community in the world throughout our story. 
the chronological framework that we're discussing is from 1770 to the year of the first partition of Poland, and especially from the year 1795, the last and third partition of Poland, and it ends in 1917 with the Russian Revolution during World War I, and then it becomes eventually when the dust settles Soviet Russia. So it's no longer the Tsars and the Russian Empire. So we're looking at that. That's our framework. We're looking at a little over a century. That's the entire story. Before that, it was, before 1772, was the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And after that, it was the revolution, which, like I said, was either the Soviet Union or it was independent Poland. It was the Second Polish Republic. A lot of the lands of what was formerly the, in Russia became uh, Poland in the interwar uh, uh, period. Geographically, we're talking about uh, the western areas of the Russian Empire, and it's the most complicated part of the story because of all the border changes and, of course, the development of what's come to be known as the Pale of Settlement, which I'll get to as well. This episode, and what's going to be part two of this episode, is more of a top-down episode. In other words, how did the Tsars deal with the Jews and much less of how the Jews of the Russian Empire uh, lived under the Tsars and reacted to that. Um, We'll talk about that as well, obviously, because it's related. But to fully understand the Jews in Russia during this time period would require another few episodes, perhaps an entire series, on the Jews and the Pale of Settlement. So for now, the focus is going to be on the Tsars and their Jewish policies. So the House of Romanov is the Tsarist dynasty. And the key to understanding their relationship with the Jews is that they have a dual leadership, a dual and sometimes conflicting hats worn by the Tsars. I don't mean literally hats, because if you take a look at a lot of the paintings and photographs of the Tsars, they often didn't wear any hat. But I'm referring to a figurative hat of their leadership positions in their capacity as Tsar. One leadership position that all the Tsars had was a head of state. They were the head of state in an absolutist monarchy, an autocracy, essentially, which from the time of the partition of Poland, and even before that, meant a very centralized authority. And at points in the 18th and 19th centuries, the Romanov dynasty even practiced enlightened absolutism, which was a form of government which was common in Europe during those centuries. It was an absolutist monarchy influenced by ideas of the European Enlightenment, reforms, uh, which is, like I said, very common in many different countries in Europe during those centuries, especially the Austrian Empire, but also Prussia, and Denmark, Portugal, Greece, other places. Um, the slogan of, abs- of, of enlightened absolutism was everything for the people, nothing by the people. Uh, that was one side of the equation, and that's one uh, hat that the Tsar wears. The other side is the fact that the Tsars serve as the religious head of the Russian Orthodox Church, which saw themselves as the successors of the Byzantine Empire, and even went so far as to call Moscow the Third Rome, or St. Petersburg the Third Rome. And there's no Pope in the Eastern Orthodox uh, Church, in the the Russian Orthodox Church. The Tsar is essentially the Pope. He's the head of of the Church. In that capacity, the official policy of Russian Orthodoxy had been to exclude Jews from living within the borders of the empire altogether and to attempt to convert them. So you have two positions which were often in conflict um, because of running a country with Jews inside as the head of the country uh, can sometimes see the Jews as an economic asset, as people to draft into the army, and so on. Uh, Whereas the, the the religious policy is to be 
uh, very um, virul- virulently anti-Jewish uh, as a result of, of religious anti-Semitism, essentially, of the Russian Orthodox Church and the Tsar in his capacity as the head of that church. So that's the, 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 the relationship, the Tsar's relationship uh, 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 with the Jews in the empire is essentially framed by these two positions, whichever one was more dominant at the time, along with, of course, a host of other political and economic considerations. So we're going to go now and go one by one through the czars uh, uh, um, through, from the time of the partition until the revolution. So first we start with Catherine the Great, uh, Yakterina, I believe is how it's said in Russian. I think so, because that's how we say it in Hebrew. So I'm just assuming that the Hebrew copied it from the Russian or something along those lines. But in English, it's Catherine. Uh, and she serves as the Tsarina from 1762 to 1796, for over 30 years. And as far as Russia is concerned, it's considered a golden age of the Romanov dynasty and for the Russian Empire. She oversaw the partition of Poland itself, all three, were during her uh, tenure. So this is a crucial component of the story. Until the partition, um, there's no Jews in Russia on a permanent basis, like I said, unless they converted to the Russian Orthodox Church. That was the official religious and governmental policy. And now at the three stages of the partition, in one fell, or rather in three fell swoops, they inherited the largest Jewish population in the world. So her policies is Russia's first attempt at what they would label the Jewish question in quotation marks, an ominous label which would reverberate through modern European history with ultimately tragic consequences in the 20th century. So already with the first partition, Tsarina Catherine and her government wasted no time on implementing a Jewish policy. On Rosh Hashanah of 1772, the Jews of White Russia, Belarus, uh, found notices posted on their shul entrances by Russian troops, which which stated the following message from the new government. The gist of it is that Jews residing in the newly annexed territories shall retain their privileges and rights as before. Freedom to practice their religion and commerce, etc., etc., etc. This is all conditional upon their being loyal, obedient subjects and will act appropriately in their businesses for the good of the country and treasury. So here the Jews, uh, formerly of Poland, now of Russia, are introduced to the absolutist monarchy who is running a centralized authority of the state who wishes to have all the subjects contribute to the state's welfare and economic uh, growth for the state's and the crown's benefit, of course. The Jews were in, in, like I said, in the newly acquired western sections of the empire, and the Tsarist government was concerned with two questions as, as far as the Jews were concerned. Number one, how do we integrate the Jews into Russian society? And number two, how do we maximize the economic benefit of the Jews within the Russian economy? Underlying these challenges was the idea that the Jewish population had until this point been the subjects of the Polish aristocratic magnates on their property, on their huge pieces of real estate, with their respective privileges that they had received from the Polish kingdom throughout the centuries. And now they were moving to a new form of government, the absolutist and centralized state. And under the, under the absolutist model, every ethnic group in the, grouping in the population, every minority or every class, we can call it, in the European world of that time, was measured through one parameter only, as far as the government was concerned, as a utility. How much can the state derive a benefit from them from their economic activity. That's the only barometer of a, a group, a, 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 every autonomous uh, group within the empire. 
That's, that's how the government views them. Um, so in around 1775, uh, shortly following the first partition, the Jews in the newly conquered areas were recognized by the Tsar's government as part of the urban merchant class, which is means they can now vote and be elected in city elections, local positions of power, all localized. At the same time, they were not, at this point, required to dismantle their autonomous kahal kihila structure. So they maintained their own autonomy, their own uh, governing structures, while at the same time received this partial emancipation, essentially, and equal rights. Now this historical tidbit, as far as I know, is not so well known and nothing short of astounding. Russia, the Russian Empire, who never, ever bestowed full emancipation or equal rights on its Jewish population, they were only fully emancipated with the revolution in 1917, after the Tsar abdicated. Um, they're ironically, this same Russia is ironically the first country in the world to give partial emancipation to its Jewish population. Um, so this is, I mean, this is, this is astounding. This is 14 years before the French Revolution. This is one year before the United States Declaration of Independence. So Russia becomes the first country in the world to partially emancipate its Jewish population. It's an irony. To be clear, no one, no one at all, Jews and non-Jews, no one had emancipation in the Russian Empire. It was a very rigid class system. Of course, the serfs remained, remained serfs, the peasants they remain uh, uh, not emancipated. They remain essentially slaves until 1861, when the great reformer, Alexander, Tsar Alexander II, uh, frees the serfs. So you're talking about a very rigid class system. So we're not talking about real emancipation here. All this means is that they were officially recognized as part of the urban class. So whatever freedom the urban class had, the Jews had equally. That was the equal rights that they enjoyed. Uh, of course, this freedom itself was quite limited. At the same time, they retained their autonomous privileges from the old Polish kingdom as well. And this is the age of enlightened absolutism in Russia under Catherine, Tsarina Catherine. This status was solidified in another law promulgated in 1785. The problem was that the anti-Jewishness of the Russian Orthodox Church, of which Catherine was, of course, the head of, did not disappear automatically, so this situation was somewhat precarious. Another issue arose, which was to completely define the existence of the Jews in Russia during this entire period, as well as its, and its memory, memory of this episode, haunts us until today. The Jews are now an urban merchant class with equal rights to the non-Jewish merchant class. Both the Polish uh, urban merchants in the areas in which they resided in the western jurisdictions of the empire, as well as the ethnic Russian merchant class, which is in the interior, in the Russian interior of the empire, beyond the borders of the annexed ter territories from Poland, east. So as Jewish merchants start to sojourn east with their newfound freedom and equality in search of business opportunity in the Russian interior, this is the first time they're going in there legally, the Russian merchants are not excited about this competition. Things come to a head until finally in 1791, still, this is only after the first partition, Catherine, Catherine's government issues a decree that Jews may only reside and do business in the western areas of the empire which had been annexed from Poland and where they had previously reside, resided. They were not allowed to live east in Russia proper. However, at that time, Catherine's armies had successfully defeated the Ottoman Empire to the south 
and occupied huge swaths of territory in southern Ukraine and further south, all the way down to the Black Sea, seeking to settle these newly occupied areas and to develop them economically and to create a buffer zone between them and the Ottoman Empire, Jews were allowed and even encouraged to settle these areas as well. So in essence, the Jews were allowed to reside in the western sections of the empire, which had been annexed from Poland, which on today's map of Europe is Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, most of Poland itself, Ukraine, and the newly occupied areas from the Ottoman Empire to the south. This was a north-south area of territory, which traversed the entire empire from, from uh, it was a strip of land from north to south, and this comes to be known in Jewish history as the Pale of Settlement. In Hebrew and in Yiddish, it was known as the Tchum HaMoshav, or Tchum HaMoshav. And in essence, the Jews were restricted to these areas, irrespective of demographic growth or economic opportunity. And this restriction would be a defining feature of Russian life, under Russian Jewish life under the Tsars. That is Catherine the Great. Her son, Paul I, Tsar Paul, is, is the is the uh, Tsar from 1796 to 1801, until um, he's assassinated in 1801, which is a short period of time and nothing too exciting takes place as far as the Jews were concerned. So we're going to move on to his son, Tsar Alexander I, who's the Tsar from 1801 to 1825. Alexander I initially continues the trend of enlightened absolutism of his predecessors. He commenced his tenure with a slew of reforms, and in 1804, he instituted what can be referred to as the Jews' Constitution, which is an entire systematic legal document classifying the Jews of Russia and all the laws pertaining to them in a very orderly fashion. This was a codification of the Jews' status as far as the Tsar was concerned. He was influenced in this regard by the Austrian and Prussian empires to the West, and what they had done with their Jewish subjects, and also by some of the conclusions of the four-year same at the end of the Polish kingdom, which I mentioned in the episode about the partitions of Poland. Two of the committee members to the 1804, to the drafting of this 1804 legal code about the Jews were Polish noblemen who had served on the four-year same. Either way, this so-called constitution had some benefits for the Jewish population and some downsides as well. On one hand, the stated goal was to integrate the Jews of Russia into Russian society to the economic benefit of the Tsar and to, quote-unquote, improve the Jews and make them more economically, quote, productive in accord with the values of the European Enlightenment. To this end, all Russian schools and universities were opened for Jewish students for the first time. We're talking about 1804, I remind you. It encouraged Jews to engage in agriculture. On the other hand, it threatened to expel Jews from the villages to once and all, once and for all remove Jews from the leasing industry, which they were still affiliated with and tied to through the Polish aristocracy. That didn't work. Jews would remain in that economic system tied to the Polish aristocrats and the leasing system until the latter part of the century. Other benefits of this constitution was the freedom of religion that it uh, provided for the Jews. Um, like I said, it had it was partly an enlightened document. Included in this law was a very crucial clause which allowed various religious sects among the Jews the right to erect their own houses of worship and synagogues without permission from the official kahal. This was a crucial clause. The law recognized that there were different types of Jews who worshipped in different ways, and it was therefore legal to do so. This had far-reaching ramifications for the spread of the Hasidic movement, and severely curtailed the establishment's ability to oppose it, to excommunicate it, or to inform on them to the authorities. In essence, it completely put a halting stop to the active phase of the 
Hisnagdus movement, the opposition movement to the Hasidic movement. And the opposition to the Hasidic movement from here on in would be in the ideological and theological realm. Because essentially, the Tsars had made the Hasidic movement legal, and there was nothing more to stop it. So it's an incredible uh, clause in that law as well. Finally, the Constitution enshrined the previous law of 1785 into a formal understanding that the Jews were equal status to the urban merchant class with all the accompanying local voting and electable rights. Many welcomed these new freedoms, but others such as Reb Nachman of Breslov and other tzaddikim saw this Constitution as providing too many freedoms, which would now be a threat to traditional society. But at this point, Tsar Alexander was seen by the Jews of Russia as a somewhat benevolent and even enlightened ruler. And it is in this context that we can return to an old, old topic from the early days of Jewish history soundbites, when I discuss Napoleon and the Jews. When Napoleon invades Russia, the Alter Rebbe of Shner Zalman of Liadi, he supported the Tsar and fled to the Russian interior. Common wisdom attributes that to his perception that the freedom of the French emancipation and liberal values of Napoleon would be a threat to traditional Judaism, and therefore the Tsar's repressive policies would be preferred. In reality, just as I explained, Tsar Alexander had bestowed all of these rights, and in fact, some tzaddikim saw these rights as a threat to the future of traditional Jewish life. So, so he, how could he be uh, preferring a repressive czar when this czar was not repressive? He was actually bestowing very similar rights to what the French uh, and Napoleon supported at the same time as well. So we have to say that the Alter Rebbe's support of the czar was likely more related to traditional Jewish loyalty to the sovereign state and its ruler. Or perhaps an even more radical suggestion, he saw the great benefits to the Jews through the Jewish constitution of Tsar Alexander, especially in regards to the legality of the Hasidic movement. And this demonstration of loyalty was also a demonstration of gratitude. But that was a topic for that time. Either way, this golden age under Tsar Alexander, and golden age is in quotation marks, uh, at first, uh, the fir- Alexander I did not last, as he mod- mod- modified his stance following Napoleon's defeat. Um, he was fearful of the influences of the French Revolution and its values, and he therefore begins a reactionary policy which affected the Jews as well. Tsar Alexander changes his former position about the Jews, and instead of enlightened absolutism, his orthodox Christian side got the better of him, and he decided that the solution to the Jewish question will be achieved by converting them all to Russian orthodoxy, which is a complete turnaround from his former position. To that end, in 1817, he established an agency of conversion to missionize among the Jewish population in Russia, primarily by promising them free farmland if they should convert to Russian Orthodoxy. This continued until his passing in 1825 and was actively continued and was part of the official policy of his successor. Who is his successor? His younger brother, Tsar Nicholas I, or Nikolai I, who served as the Tsar of Russia from 1825 to 1855, three decades. Of all the Tsars, this is the one where all the stereotypes are really, really the true. True. I mean, I think the stereotype was made about Tsar Nikolai. He is like the the ultimate evil. This is where all the stories happen. This is the ultimate evil Tsar, sworn enemy of the Jews, and under his reign, the Jews of Russia were oppressed and suffered like never before. The infamous Cantonist decrees took place only under his reign. It took a few years until his successor, Tsar Alexander II, repealed them, but primarily it was under the reign of Tsar Nicholas. The idea developed during his 30-year reign, primarily by his famous minister of education, Sergei Uvarov, that Russian identity was based on a triangular relationship between the Russian people, the autocracy of the Tsar, and the Orthodox Church. 
Integrating the Jews into Russian society was therefore contingent upon their conversion to Christianity. That became the official state policy under Tsar Nicholas. This fit right into another major component of all absolutist monarchies in Europe at this time, which was army service. In the Middle Ages, armies were small and usually restricted to the noble class. Modernity and the age of absolutism required large armies drawn from all classes who were now all subjects of the country and to be utilized for the country's welfare and security. So army drafts start to appear on the world scene across Europe. In 1788, Austria becomes the first country in Europe to draft Jews into its military. Um, Forty years later, 1827, the draft of Jews arrives in Russia. This traumatic event of the 1827 draft law of Tsar Nicholas is one of the most remembered of all in Jewish history. Uh, for this, in the, within this draft law was the Cantonist decrees. A component of this draft law was the Cantonist decrees. The draft was indiscriminate. Uh, was the, I'm sorry, the, the draft discriminated against the Jews in the fact that Jews had to supply proportionally more recu- recruits than other segments of the population. But there was much more insidious components of this awful decree. The recruits were drafted for a period of for as long as 25 years, far from the pale of settlement, from traditional Jewish life, and the community with no accommodations, of course, in the military, the Russian military for any religious needs. Active attempts were made to convert them to Russian Orthodoxy, and even worse, many children, officially from age 12, but often as young as 6, were kidnapped to be taken to military prep schools, where they were schooled and they attempted to convert them before they formally joined the military at the age of 18. But all that was not the worst part. Those are the Cantonists, by the way. Those young kids who were, brought, who were kidnapped and brought to military prep schools, those are the Cantonists. Um, but all that was not the worst part. In those days, the Tsar did not recognize individual subjects. There was no individual draft. You didn't get a draft card. You didn't, you didn't exist as an individual. You existed as a member of a community. The Jews, as a community, were required to supply the draft quota. So that meant that the kahal was required to supply it to the Tsarist police. So obviously the members of the kahal themselves and anyone associated with them would not send their own children. And anyone who could pay off the kahal would obviously get their children off the hook. Anyone prominent in the community, the rabbi's children, people like that, were also off the hook. So how are they going to fill this quota? So the kahal, the Jewish kahal, hires chappers, which are kidnappers, with kahal funds. In other words, the taxes they collect from members of the kahal kahal are used for this purpose, to hire professional kidnappers who are paid by the kahal to kidnap the most vulnerable members of the Jewish community, the orphans and the poor, or people who didn't have sufficient documentation, uh, you know, beggars and other things, people like that. Uh, These were then of the Jewish community, these these people were then, these children, these uh, poor and orphans, were then handed over to the Tsarist police and sent to the military. This is one of the saddest and most tragic episodes in all of Jewish history, and the Cantonist decrees and the Kahal's role in them will have to be further explored in its own episode. It's way too big of a story for us to discuss here in this context. In 1835, a whole package of new rules were imposed on the Jews of Russia under Nikolai. This included restrictive measures in regards to the borders of the Pale of Settlement, further limiting where the Jews were allowed to live and engage in commerce. Starting in the 1840s, Tsar Nicholas attempted to interfere with Jewish internal life in a host of other ways. One of the most prominent was what's come to be known as the Haskalah Mita'am, Mita'am the Tsar. In other words, the Haskalah, not by the Jewish Haskalah movement, but rather an imposed Haskalah 
by the Tsar and his government. In other words, the attempts of the Tsar's government to force the Jewish community to accept reforms to their educational institutions, to their communal structure, and their religious leadership. This was also led by the aforementioned Minister of Education, Sergei Uvarov. One of the primary motives of, was the revival of an old anti-Semitic trope from the Middle Ages, the demonization of the Talmud. And it was seen to blame for all of the Jews' perceived deficiencies. So a complete revamping of the Jewish educational content was needed for children's primary education, for rabbinical schools, a disregard for the Talmud, a return to the prominence of Tanakh, this is what the Tsar advocated for Jewish education, and of course instituting the study of science and languages and new ideas. They were to enter the new and reformed cheders and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and rabbinical schools. To that end... Uvarov imported and commissioned a maskil from Germany, Max Lilienthal, to promote these educational reforms among the Jews of the Pale. The traditional Jewish leadership rejected him, and even the Russian maskilim who embraced the ideas of Uvarov resented the fact that he had brought an import from Germany. Uh, what's wrong with the local maskilim, right? So following the, following the Lilienthal saga, which I discussed in part two of the Valozhin Yeshiva series, you can see more on it there, Uvarov invites a commission of four Jewish representatives to discuss the changes he wanted. The four were Rabitzel of Alajan, the son of Rabchaim Alajan, head of the Alajan Yeshiva, Rabnachem Mendel, the Tzemach Tzedek, the Rebbe of Lubavitch, a banker from Berdichev who was close to the Hasidic movement named Yosef Halperin, and a maskil from Odessa, Betzal Stern, who was an educator and immigrant from, immigrant from Austrian Galicia. Uvarov's message was, impo- was an imposed reform. For of all the education, including rabbinical schools, what's fascinating is who the Tsar's government invites in 1842. That's when this takes place. None of these four were, were what we would call official leaders. I mean, technically, Rabitzel of Alajan was the rabbi of the town of Alajan, so he was affiliated with the Kahal, but it wasn't in that capacity that he was invited to participate. He was invited to, to participate in his capacity as the head of the Alajan Yeshiva. So none of these four were from the official Jewish establishment. They're all they're all outside. They're leaders, but they're outside of the Jewish establishment. This was a new era. And even the Tsarist government recognized that the true leaders of the Jewish people were outside the established Kahal structure. A Hasidic Tzaddik, a Rosh Yeshiva, a banker, which is, you know, the world of finance, business, wealth, and a maskil. So this is a very defining moment in the history of Jewish leadership. It's kind of a side point. Either way, the Committee of Four could not exactly reject the Tsar's directives, obviously, so they just made valiant attempts to mitigate its uh, consequences. Then a historic decree comes from Tsar Nikolai I. On December 19th, 1844, the cancelling or the annulment of the Kahal. No more Jewish autonomous structure, whatever was left of it at this point. Not much was left. Either way, the Tsar's goal was to deal directly with the Jews as subjects without intermediaries. It did not work at all. Since the Tsar's government had no capability of controlling the huge Jewish population, they still had to utilize various other organizations and internal Jewish communal structures as intermediaries. The results of these attempts at Haskalami Tam in the Nicholas uh, government was met with mixed reactions. Some accepted the opportunities it afforded, while many traditional elements were vehemently opposed. Other mechanisms were used by the Tsar to, to directly intervene with the Jewish internal values and lifestyle. Censorship increased. Publishing houses were closed down. Regulation on books and sfarim. Incredibly, all these collective attempts, and there was all these all after all these collective attempts, the results were quite negligible. But they were talking now 70, 80 years of Russian rule, 
of political and educational reform, of changing the internal autonomous infrastructure of the Jewish community, of the army draft, and everything else that the czars attempted, and it was so far did very little to change the traditional lifestyle of the Jewish masses in Russia. Rabbis remained the same, the Hasidic movement spread. The primary accomplishment of all this was a fundamental change in the way Jews viewed their ruler and their government. For centuries, there was a basic understanding of loyalty and obedience to the ruler by the very virtue of his being a ruler. The three decades of oppressive rule under Tsar Nicholas I changed that relationship forever. Never again would the Jewish masses be so loyal and obedient to the rulership by that virtue alone. They felt betrayed, and often disloyalty and disobedience was seen to be as a mechanism for survival. This shift would also have ramifications down the road in Jewish history. Two additional far-reaching consequences of Tsar Nicholas's Jewish, or rather anti-Jewish, policies can be pointed out as well. Number one, Jews in the West, many of whom had already achieved full or at least partial emancipation, began to feel the pain of their brethren in Russia. For the first time, this connection was forged between the Jews of the East and West, which was expressed through philanthropy and other ways. This can be perhaps best expressed with the famous visit of Sir Moses Montefiore to St. Petersburg and the Pale of Settlement in 1846. So that's one story that develops over the next centuries. Number two, the Jews suffering under the brunt of the Tsar's government could not, they couldn't complain too much. You couldn't complain about what the Tsar was doing to you. It was illegal, and it was very dangerous. So you couldn't catch, and you couldn't point fingers, and you couldn't blame the Tsar. It was illegal, and it was very dangerous. But, so, but with this whole saga of the Haskalah Mitam, and the Tsar's government's efforts at directly intervening in traditional Jewish life, there was another available scapegoat for the j- traditional Jewish community's wrath. And that was the Maskilim. The Maskilim who went along and supported the Tsar's platform. All of the frustration was subsequently poured out on these maskilim as they were safe now from Tsarist retribution. They weren't blaming the Tsar, they were blaming an internal Jewish issue of the Haskalah. This would do much to shape Jewish collective memory as if it was the Haskalah movement which wreaked havoc on Jewish traditional life. The reality is, and that has hopefully become clear as it's a theme I keep returning to, and it's one of my favorites, is that external forces were the primary catalyst for changes in the Jewish people in modern times, and not so much the internal changes. One or two laws of the Tsar, such as the army draft or partial emancipation, that has a much greater effect, significantly more change, than a group of maskilim who write books that no one reads anyway. The Tsar and his government and their policies and the modern era and technology and so on, and those things were the primary catalyst for change in the pale of settlement over the next half century and not internal uh, Jewish issues. So that's, <coughs> excuse me, that's it for part one. We covered three czars. We have three more to do in part two. We have Tsar Alexander II and his reforms. The reform did, the reform, these reforms did much more to obtain the desired change than the repressive and forceful measures of his predecessor. Following Tsar Alexander II's assassination, we, in 1881, we have Alexander III and his reactionary policies, the pogroms, the beginnings of the Great Immigration, and the final Tsar, which was Tsar Nicholas II, who was also not very friendly to the Jews, to say the least, and he was at the helm until the revolution, which resulted in his abdication and subsequent execution by a Jew, by the way, ironically, named Yaakov Yurovsky, but that's another story. And this and more next on part two. I've gotten quite a few complaints lately that I've 
had part ones, which are not followed up by part twos. It's very simple. If it gets sponsored, we follow up with part two. No sponsor, no part two. So recently we had a part one on Chabad and Zionism. We had a part one on Rebbe Malin. And now we have a part one on the Tsars and the Jews. All of them have part twos ready and available for sponsorship. So be in touch with me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. And also for anything else you need, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And I hope you enjoyed.